Hey there, um, you're watching School Psych Podcast. Very happy to have everybody tuning in tonight. It's funny because I was just um, browsing on Facebook before we started and um, I noticed that somebody put this really great post about um, trying to distance ourselves and not burn ourselves out from school psychology. And he, was, he had some really good points. He was like, you guys are all living and breathing school psychology and it's the weekend and everybody's posting in this forum and everybody's talking and I'm thinking in my head and I'm about to go live and do a podcast on school psychology. But I think we all love it. So we're going to roll with it um, and definitely um, make sure we have that balance in there too. But my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist and I'm working in the state of Maryland. I'm going to turn it over to Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psych working in New York State, and I think I've been burning the candle at both ends, so I might sound a little throatier and sexier than usual. But um, I'm going to tell you how to participate today. Please forgive my um, uh, distractedness because I'm stressed in life and um, sick. So you can participate on our Facebook page, School Psych Podcast page, or the School Psych or School Psychologist page. You can also do hashtag Psych Podcast or um, participate on YouTube Live. And I'm introducing Rebecca. Hi everybody, I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut, and I am so excited to have our guest, uh, Dr. Lynn Kenny, on the podcast tonight. Dr. Lynn is a pediatric psychologist, mother of two, an international educator and author in Scottsdale, Arizona. Her books include the Social Emotional Literacy Program, Bloom Your Room, Musical Thinking, Bloom, and 50 Things to Say, Think, and Do with Anxious, Angry, and Over-the-Top Kids, Kenny and Young, 2015. And of course, my very favorite book of Lynn's is called <laughs> 70 Play Activities for Better Thinking and Self-Regulation. Learning and Behavior, and that's from 2016, and that is the story that I'd like to tell about Lynn. How I um, met Lynn is a funny story, uh, and first it started on um, School Psych, your school psychologist Facebook page. Lynn and I were chatting. I was often sharing from her website and from her Facebook page, and we um, were chatting one day, and she, Lynn travels all over the country doing workshops and professional development and working with schools. Um, and she, she happened to say, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods. Um, what are you doing? And so I said, well, it's like, it's the last day of school uh, picnic. So I'm really not doing much. I'm going to, you know, spend a couple hours cleaning up my office and then go to this picnic. Would you like to join us? And she said, yes. So <laughs> it was really wonderful. She had so little time. She was traveling like from New Haven to another part of the state and she was just passing through, but we, she and I got to talking and we were having such a great conversation, just connecting on ideas and philosophies and, uh, you know, stories about our practice. And um, I said, oh, my goodness, I have to take my daughter to the eye doctor, but I don't want to stop talking to you. And I know you're not here for very long. Could you come with me? And so Lynn and I took my daughter to the eye doctor. And that is how I first met her and became such a fan. And um, she's such a mentor to me as also because over time, if I have a really perplexing situation or a question, she's always someone that I can call. She's very generous with her time, and she's just wonderful. So thank mm -hmm. you so much, Lynn, for being here and for sharing your wisdom with all of us, and welcome. How are uh, you? My honor. You know what I want to say about you, Rebecca? You are the kind of person that can literally make a friend in 30 seconds. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not kidding. And that was the greatest time. And then, you know, we write this book together, which – you really helped me because I had been writing that book for three years. 
and I needed to get it done. And it's all, this is always true of my books. I need a person to say, I need this, or I'll contribute. And so then I said, will you please, you know, write some of the executive function activities because I learned them with you. And then bang. And the th same thing happened with Bloom Your Room. There was a teacher in Massachusetts about two months ago who wrote me this heart-wrenching story. And I was like, we got to finish this book. We got to finish this book. <laughs> wow. And so tell us, Lynn, you're, I'm going to um, cut and your bio is on our um, post for this podcast and we're going to put it in the notes and I'm going to share it um, for everyone who's watching on YouTube. But tell us about yourself. How did you get into this field? You know, give us the stuff that's not in the official um, press release. How, how did you become a, a clinical child psychologist and what, what brings you to work every day? What gets you through your days and keeps you motivated? Well, you know, the funny thing about me, which I think you know, Rebecca, is that I have trouble staying in bed. Like, all <laughs> night, I wake up and I'm like, can I go to work? Can I go to work? And I make myself stay in bed till four in the morning. That's my agreement with myself. Um, <laughs> there's so much to do every day, you know, more writing and videos. And, um, so, the, and it's funny that you ask this because you can do this activity when you're doing workshops. You know, we're in the middle of a little tour right now. And I actually come to Connecticut in two weeks, but I'm going to be like in Trumbull and Rhode Island. So not very close to you guys, but I'm going there on December 12, 13, 14. Um, and the, one of the first activities I do in the workshop is I ask everybody to take out a piece of paper and either write a bubble chart or a timeline of how in their career they got to be here today. Because the way I got to, and before I tell my story, I'm much more interested in their story. And so we all do that, and then some people share. And, you know, I, and I, and then I tell a little bit of my story as it's related to the workshop, of course. So what's related to the workshop is that I started out as a psychoanalytically oriented play therapist. Ah. I didn't even know if you knew that. No. And, I got my master's in I got my master's in PE before I got a doctorate, and when I was in the inner city of Los Angeles in around 1985, I noticed that the highly traumatized inner city kids were not talkers. So I started going out and bouncing basketballs, and soon by 2009, I had poly spots, and I just started to really incorporate a lot of movement into the talking, and that's how all of this basically executive function content in the classroom through physical activity started. So that's that's kind of the short story of the long 35-year road. That's, I, I did, if I knew that, I didn't remember. So that's really cool. I, I really love um, the connection that I have in, in my building with PE teachers and how um, it's a place where a lot of kids, I find, struggle, you know, with, um, sensory overload and also just the difference in expectations in a big class of PE versus, you know, the, the, the rest of their day. And so I love partnering with um, PE teachers to figure out, you know, how to help kids feel their best and, and do well in that environment. And I think that it's such an important time um, for children as well. Have you noticed, Lynn, do you think that um, our kids lately in school seem – more dysregulated than they have over the years, sort of more, there's more of this need for, well, maybe I should phrase it a different, why do you think there's such a need for movement in the classroom? It's not something that I remember because my first round of graduate 
school was in the 90s. It's not something I remember anybody talking about so much back then. And now I hear it all the time. And there's often wonderful things that teachers do, like use Go Noodle and um, and occupational therapists do wonderful work in schools. But why do you think it's so at the forefront of um, people's consciousness lately? Well, I know, I'm sure that you guys have really valuable opinions too, because you play with children and my, my simple opinion is that when we were young, the world was different. We played outside all the time. Our mothers, uh, our fathers, our grandparents sent us out the door and said, okay, come back at 7 o'clock when the dinner bell rings. And there was a lot of free play, and we didn't have computers and iPhones and screens. And so it's just a lot of common sense that we were moving more then. Uh, there, wasn't, there weren't fake foods. So there wasn't a lot of obesity. But today I saw a statistic that 60% of American children are on their way to becoming obese. And a lot of it is because our world changed. Now, the happy news, though, you know, is that people are becoming more aware of a few things. One is they're becoming more aware that executive function or thinking skills don't just rest in your head, in your frontal lobes. That We have embodied cognition. Our body likes to move in order to learn. So that's really getting out. The PE stuff, you know, brain breaks and, um, you know, the connected classroom, spotlight and all the cognitive motor movement we're creating, people are eating it up. They love it. And, you know, we're providing it almost for free to Title I schools because we've got to get, especially those children who are high-need children, moving with thought a lot more. So, um, yeah, there's good news on the horizon. I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful, Rebecca. Can you tell us more about Spotlight and the kinesthetic classroom? How did you develop that? What is what is the foundation of it? And how, how do you offer that in PD to sure. in your Sure. So the kinesthetic classroom is actually Mike Kuxala and Stacy Shoecraft, who I highly recommend you to. The kinetic classroom is actually was my practice, and I still practice. So, but the kinetic classroom actually was a bag. And I don't have it right this second because I used it so much at tour. But basically the short story is that the kinetic classroom was the bag that I took to children's homes when I was doing executive function skill coaching. And I would bring it to schools too. So it had poly spots and it, it has, I have all sorts of stuff. I've got running ladders and balls, every size ball. You can see my drum fit balls. Well, I don't know if you can see them behind me. You can kind of see them. Um, so the kinetic classroom was the way that I practiced in real life. And so um, what, what happened was, as we started traveling the United States, then Canada, and now the world, teaching embodied cognition, the fact that, as I said earlier, you know, we need to move to think. Children who have ADHD need to move, actually, in order to engage the frontal lobes and have enough dopamine flowing, which I know you know. Once we started doing that, I was doing the, you know, up to 100 activities, some of which you and I wrote together with the motor movement activities that I started developing in 1985. And people said, we need them written down, we need video. Everyone always needs video, which honestly, you guys, is the hardest part to get because getting consent is hard, video is expensive to shoot, it's time consuming to edit. So we have 30 videos now up on the Kinetic Classroom, thank goodness, and they're, they're good, but we're gonna do more. Um, so basically, the Kinetic Classroom is a mix of the cognitive physical activities that, that I teach and have been doing with the children, often created with the children. That's the most important part. This is not the Lynn Kenny show. This is the kids show, you know. 
And then the other part is our little executive function messages, like you know, teaching you about the attention engine, teaching you about you opening your memory window, teaching you how to do the Am I Ready Test test. So you know from our work together that we've got a lot of catchy little EF concepts, and those are all contained in video and educational stuff on the Kinetic Classroom. Spotlight I'm going to send you, and, and I would love to give one away or even five away, because Spotlight is the coolest thing we've ever done. Spotlight is a visual cognitive motor communication system that we started developing forever ago, but it really revved up. Um, it really revved up when we were working with the children. And basically, the spotlights are lights that you look at. There's 16 lights per page. You move in four four time, and there's four colored lights, and they tell you what part of your body to move. And so Spotlight is a wonderful classroom, team, athletic, old people's homes, mm -hmm. activity that anybody can do with hardly any training. Um, and we, we're just starting to distribute it now. So we're so, we're so excited. That's so fun. I just pushed into a classroom and did some Simon Says um, the other day. But this sounds like, a, like a, a really fun game to play to get kids thinking about you know, stop and think and, and executive skills. And that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you can create some sort of giveaway or something. And I'll give away one. I mean, Spotlight itself is a document, but on the platform, it's got the video, et cetera, et cetera. That's awesome. How about we say that um, anybody who either tweets us or on Facebook right now um, uses the hashtag psyched podcast and says hello to dr lynn psyched podcast hi dr lynn we'll get the first one <laughs> let's do it okay cool mess i'll be looking for you guys out there so hashtags like podcast dr lynn and um often a lot of our viewers watch on their commute to work or not watch hopefully unless they're on the train uh, but listen on itunes on the way to work so we will figure out how to give a couple more away that's awesome thank you <laughs> so one of the things that I think is important to know, because we've I've kind of just talked about the overview of what we've developed, is that the, there is a lot of good movement going on in the United States. OTs have been doing good movement stuff forever. Um, you know, PE people like Dave Senecal and uh, Paul Rosengard, they've been doing great stuff for a really long time, too. The thing that I think is missing that we all need to add is tempo and timing. I think that even when we're doing Go Noodle, if we're moving on the beat, with the beat, then you're actually creating an embodied cognition scaffold on which your cognition can rest. So we love movement and physical, you know, I cite over 100 studies in, in 70 play activities and in my brain talk, but the thing that people don't know yet, and they're starting to learn in all the, the workshops, they're so cute, everyone's shouting out, that's so cute, <laughs> is that we've got to add tempo and timing. If we're going to do movement together in the classroom, we've got to try to be an orchestra, and we've got to try to move on the downbeat, because that requires more cognition than just um, imitating movements on a screen. Wow, yeah, so how does that, so are you using this to teach teachers how to do this with their classrooms, or do you also use it in, in small groups and counseling? And what what would it sound like? You know, like, hey, kids, we're going to play a game, or, or how do you introduce it to kids? Yeah, so on my website, we've got some videos of the real children. I've got, like, a little montage of the real children, and I love these children. They're so beautiful and wonderful. And I just played with five classrooms in New Haven, um, 
about a week and a half ago. And what's amazing is how fast these kids pick it up. Now, many children with attention and learning challenges, possibly exposure to poverty or high need settings, they sometimes don't have good overall brain integration. So it takes them a little longer to be on the beat to to do, but usually nobody's ever brought brought this up with them. You know, let's walk, let's crouch like tigers. Let's stretch tall like giraffes. Let's get down and crouch like tigers. The only place they hear stuff like that is in music class and music education we know, you know, is getting decimated, um, which we need to bring it back. So, the way it sounds is it depends on the activity you're going to introduce. Like as an example, Catch the Rhythm, which um, you, you can see on, on the website, um, we, we have a little song. And so we're moving our body in an integrated manner. We're crossing in that activity bilaterally. We're doing unilateral and bilateral coordination, and we're singing a song. So we're saying, catch the rhythm with our, this is our catch the rhythm with our ears, ears, ears. We catch the rhythm with our shoulders. Shoulders, shoulders, that sort of thing. And catch the rhythm is actually a switch task because people are used to um, other not, not going across their bodies. Mm. And then we can switch it up. We can say to them, when we say ears, we're going to do shoulders. Ready? Catch the rhythm with your ears, ears, ears. And everybody giggles and they love it. So there's a whole broad range of activities, everything from marching and stomping, which I think is really important for the cerebellar, you know, the corticocerebellar loop. We've got to get those corticocerebellar and the striatal loops integrated and talking with one another. And we know that the only way you build neuronal highways is to use them over and over again with lots of repetition. So that's kind of what it sounds like. It says we're going to move to think. We're going to do activities today because we're cognitive scientists that, make a, that allow us to move and think at the same time. So cool. I know some OTs, friends of mine, who would just absolutely love you for this because um, what I see sometimes happening is children have to get who need sort of extra occupational therapy support or this kind of move to think um, practice, do it outside of school if they're lucky enough, if they're, if they're able to do that. Um, but it, if we could integrate it more into their day, it could be so much more helpful because that's where they spend the most time. And then also they would get that um, sense of this is, you know, something that we're all learning together. This is a, a normal, uh, fun way to use my body to learn and think. And, you know, rather than maybe this is something I have to do outside of school that doesn't have anything to do with my friendships and my learning and my morning meeting and stuff like that. I think it's really cool. I think that you just brought up one of the most important points, and that is that there, we in America especially, we layer content on top of children whose brains don't have foundational connections. And so there are foundational things that you need in order to be a solidly, you know, an effective thinker, all right? One, you need to understand sequences. You need to understand that things go in order, which I know a school psychologist would really know. You need to, you need to speak to your brain in patterns because patterns like red light, blue light, red light, blue light, your brain loves patterns. And from, you know, as early as nine months of age, when you're starting to put your little blocks in your little cups, you're starting to learn patterns. Then you really need timing, which I've already talked about. And then you need energy management, self-regulation and attention. 
And if you have those things, which is a little bit of a JP Dossian concept, um, and I know you've had Jack Navalieri on before, if you have those things, then you can open the window to your memory so that information can come in and you can make it knowledge. But without those foundational things, we can't do very much. Now, what's amazing about all the movement stuff is that most of our activities require nothing but your body. Now, we make it fun by using drums sometimes or yoga balls or balls, but you do not have to have any of those. And that's why in high-need schools, if you could be moving three to five minutes every 45 minutes throughout the day, you'd literally begin building neuronal connections on which later information can come into the brain and become knowledge. Does that make sense to you as a psychologist? Absolutely. I feel as though it's a, it's a little intimidating because some of that knowledge I don't have. You know, I know I talk to occupational therapies all the time about this child has trouble crossing the midline and that just wasn't part of my training, you know, all that and I'm learning more about it, like the proprioception and the interoception, um, because you know, when in the in early childhood um, classrooms when teachers are calling me in, I'm i I'm just kind of getting the sense that these what's happening with is is with these children's attention it seems very physical or sensory that they're looking either to satisfy certain sort of physical needs of um you know they're either you know sort of touching everything as they go or or lean or like looking physically tired leaning on things and not be not able to hold their bodies up in order to pay attention um so i'm i'm trying to seek out more of this understanding but is that where you're coming from? Are you coming from that? I, I want to answer a few wonderful questions that we're getting now, but I, I want to say it, it does sound intimidating because I get so excited about it. But I have a little cheat like slide, and I might just record this for everybody. But basically, all you need to do with these children is march, step, or stomp to a beat consistently on the beat as often as you can. And if, if they can't step quickly, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, slow it down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That is the key. Um, so I have a question, and I know we've, we've got some other questions too, but I'm gonna jump in. <laughs> um, so as a school psychologist, I think um, I'm kind of the skeptic of the bunch, usually of the three of us. And I think that a lot of school psychologists, you know, we're kind of very data orientated, you know. What, so this all sounds super interesting and super intuitive, um, especially, you know, you're talking at first about the screen time and we're getting less movement and things like that. So it sounds, it's, it makes sense to me logically. So can you tell us a little bit about those, some of the data and some of the research to support some of this? Um, Yes, so um, I actually have many of the citations on my site. Um, on a blog post, and I think the blog post is something like, do you want to bring more um, uh, movement to your classroom? I think that's it. But th So this is there's the range of studies, and I teach this because it, it's a little bit deep, um, meaning that there's three different layers of research, and I'll go through them really quickly. One is there is um, pretty much indisputable evidence. Nobody's arguing that physical activity is beneficial for health. There's a huge body of literature across domains. And we've actually been curating. Um, I've been working with a team at a university on the East Coast, and we've been curating studies across all sorts of disciplines, right? 
So one is we're sure physical you know, activity helps. Two is we're now beginning to learn that physical activity in the classroom, um, initially the studies were like 20 minutes to 30 minutes more PE. Now we've got studies down 10 to 15 minutes. We've started to realize that just simple physical activity is associated with better fitness and better academic achievement. But the layer that I'm most interested in is because of my clients. This is, this is driven by the children who I work with. What I'm most interested in is creating physical activities that require thought. So when we move with thought, this is what we do. When we move with thought, we pull up the need to use at least four executive functions. Almost always attention, usually planning, often memory, and usually cognitive flexibility. So when you're doing an activity, and I could do one with you right now, we should do one together. When you're doing an activity that requires thought, then you're using your executive functions. Now the good news is in the last about two years, 2015, 16, 17, we actually have some studies. Um, one of them was by Lakes and Hoyt. They did some Tai Chi work and they identified that when you add cognition, um, it improves specifically executive functions. That's the third piece that I forgot to say. I want to make children better learners. I specifically want to take children who are in poverty and high needs schools and make them better learners free. Just march and stomp and clap. That's all you have to do. Just play spotlight. So um, the, the body of literature is growing. Now the other thing is that we I've been working also um, with a team where we're going to study the efficacy of some of these tempo and timing concepts. Um, and we're not the only ones. In fact, Germany is way ahead of us. I, and I've got a whole, I could actually give you, you know, access to my Dropbox if you want. Um, Germany and Australia and New Zealand um, have been publishing this stuff for a little longer than us. But yes, there's, there's growing, growing data. And I love data too. I love data. I love research. I'm a researcher at heart. Um, but my, I'm a researcher actually in my brain, but my heart is driven by my interactions with these beautiful kids. Nothing better than kids, that's for sure. Um, so I, I work with um, kids with pretty high needs and, and the OT is always saying like, they need more physical break, they need more exercises, they need to be like these other kids in the hallway who are like bumping into each other and playing football and you know the kids I work with have disabilities and they aren't really able to integrate in the way that other kids are. But there's also like the instructional minutes the teacher has to meet. So there's sort of like a push from like what the OTs want and then what teachers really truly have to do. And that's sort of a struggle that I face. So I'm kind of wondering how do you like you weave this into instructional time? Like, how do you make breaks, physical activity work in a classroom? You've asked really awesome. Um, one that you have to weave it into your relationships. And the first way you weave it into your relationship, it, so weave it into your relationship and weave it into the classroom and weave it into uh, putting your backpack in the car. I could give you a lot of examples, but to be very specific, when, as an example, you go to get the students in their classrooms or they come to see you, if you do just about 90 seconds of a motor entrainment activity, you're, there's actually um, two studies that show that you enhance your social relatedness, you get more on the same page, and you open the brain for priming. 
All right, the priming studies are actually five-minute studies, but just try it for 90 seconds or two minutes, and you will clinically experience that if we, I'll hold a child's hand, and I'll just rock back and forth and maybe sing a song. I'll just say, hey, Joseph, it's so good to see you, and just move with them. And if you're not allowed to touch them, you know, I've got all sorts of pretend hand activities, and I think all this is in 70 play activities. But you rock or you step or you march or you move. Like you can play a game where you move forward, I move forward, you move forward, I move forward. So all that little relational stuff that you would think kind of belongs in toddlerhood doesn't. It does. It does. But it belongs in preschool and up to third grade. I've got third graders on these videos doing pretend movements with their hands where they're practicing inhibition. They're going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Pause. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Star. And even third graders and fourth graders adore it. Now, the other thing that we, so that's the piece. You bring the entrainment into your relationship. You sprinkle this by focusing on the fact that when we move with timing, we move with tempo, we move together, we improve our cognition as well as our social relationships. Yeah. I, I just want, it makes, it's making me think of this wonderful thing um, that happened at my school. We're, we're using um, the uh, mood meter from Yale's Center of Emotional Intelligence, and the mood meter is just a way to describe both the energy and pleasantness of how someone feels in a moment. And first and second graders um, learned about the mood meter, and then they, we, I worked with the music teacher to push it into the arts assembly, which is a dance program. And so kids were, we created this mood meter on the floor and kids were moving to different spots on the mood, on the imaginary mood meter and dancing to the music of that mood. And it was just such a, they, I couldn't have asked them to understand the mood meter in a more, um, you know, complete way. They just, they just get it. They just got it. And it was so beautiful that, that, connection for them. It was really cool. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because that's, once you understand the concept of, as an example, move, inhibit, move, inhibit, then you can do that in school psychology all the time. I've done it. I've got children who reach for the crayons with, uh, without saying, you know, may I take the crayons or whatever. And I say, oh, whoa, you know, let's make a plan here. Tell me what it is you'd like to do. Oh, my gosh, it's a sequence. You just said, you know, Dr. Lynn, may I have a crayon? And I said, of course. And now you've got the crayon in your hand. It's a sequence. Let's do a sequence. Let, whatever. Let's go one, two, three, four. A sequence. One, two, three, four. They just can't resist joining in and, you know. And it's so much fun. Seems it's like I really like fun. does it. <laughs> It's making me wish that I was more like musically involved. In <laughs> I have to. I have to. In full disclosure, I do not play any musical instruments. I, I do not dance. I'm completely untrained. I didn't even pay attention to the music literature, and until somebody in my brain training came up to me and said, "This sounds very musical," and I was like, "Oh, well, I haven't read that literature." I swear to gosh, that's what happened. And then I went, Alex Doman, Nacho Armani, Sheila Allen. I learned all about the literature. I actually went to an in-time training. And I was like, hmm, 
starting to pay more attention. And that's, that was, you know, took us three years to write 70 play activities. We wrote musical thinking the year, you know, we started at that earlier. So, you know, this was maybe six years ago. And all of these references, I have them all, Korovo, Korovo and Goswami, Kearney and Krauss. There's so much beautiful literature um, regarding how the brain is musical and the brain is rhythmic. And we can learn how we don't have to be musical because we are. All we've got to do is find the pulse. That's all we got to do. It's really easy. <laughs> Now, question, when, when you're referencing uh, brain training, the thing that pops to my mind is some of that negative press that some of those companies for the online games and things like that get, you know, these centers that you pay a lot of money and you go in and they're supposed to, you know, you watch the screen and you retrain your brain and, you know, you're smarter or you're cured or whatever. I, I'm assuming that, I mean, we're talking different things here, right? No, I'm really glad you asked. Okay, so I, I am like you. And I, I think I'm, I'm an optimist but I like the data, and I tend to tip my, I dip, I'm a toe, I'm a toe dipper. I like to dip and check it out and look at it, and, and I, some of my activities are like that too. Let's look at your feelings. Let's look at it from lots of sides, which Rebecca and I have talked about before. This is the bottom line. We, the field of neuroscience is only starting to grow. Cognitive science has been here a long time. Developmental, um, you know, child psychology has been here for a long time. But we have to be very careful that we apply science to everything that we develop to the best of our ability. And when I was writing 70 play activities, um, I'm familiar with brain training like Lumosity and CogMed and things like that. But when I was writing 70 play activities, I learned about Bruce Wexler at Yale, who has been at Yale for 30 years. He and Morris Bell created a program that is now called Activate at C8 Sciences. And they originally created it so that they could help people on, who have schizophrenia, who are veterans, adults, get off their medicine, which was making them have tardive dyskinesia. So what they were trying to do is enhance their executive function through activities. It turns out that they did create um, what is the most evidence-based classroom brain training program. It's a computer-based program with a motor movement component. And I, with Bruce, wrote the five-minute exercise program. So now you've got Activate and 5 and 45. They have um, a $4 million NIH grant. They have a National Science Foundation grant, so they're actually studying the efficacy. And when a kid is on Activate, their data is actually compared to the NIH toolbox. So for the first time, and they do not overpromise. Bruce Wexler is one of the most amazing humanitarians I've ever met. He doesn't overpromise. They have peer-reviewed studies, but they have like hundreds of thousands of data points on over 25,000 kids. So I have right now nine children on Activate, and I right now don't even do executive function coaching, all the stuff we've been talking about with the motor movement, unless the child is on Activate, because they're getting better so much faster, and I've got the data to actually show the family. I can even by looking at the data, kind of surmise, well, I need to work more on, on, in coaching on cognitive flexibility because the cognitive flexibility component of Activate is the test scores aren't very good. So then I do cognitive flexibility activities. So for sure, companies have overpromised. For sure, some companies don't have the money to do the research. Like, I really like Balabazette's. 
I think Balavizex is hot. No, it's not evidence-based because to do these studies, is it's a half a million dollars to start to do one of these studies. So because of my work with Bruce Wexler and Morris Bell over the past year, I have so much more respect for how hard it is to design the studies, execute the studies, and how we've got to do it all with fidelity. But as you all know, this is the end of my soliloquy, these children are suffering now. You know, like a lot of our kids can't wait until there's 15 studies on something like Activate or 5 and 45 or the Kinetic Classroom. So what we do is we make, we make empirically informed programs. That's what the Kinetic Classroom is. That's what 5 and 45 is. And then we do our best to partner with universities in order to study, you know, for whom under what conditions will which exercises work. So that was like the most important question. It's very important. So Adina was our winner in our giveaway. I want to just jump in with that. She commented a while back, but we kind of went off on a tangent. Yeah. Um, Congratulations, Adina. If you can um, message us on Facebook, on inbox message or private message on Facebook or um, Twitter um, and give us your email, we will contact you. Congratulations. Yeah, you know what I wanted to ask you, Lynn? You mentioned a couple of things, and um, I've read some of your, um, your – I've shared a lot of your work around cognitive conversation, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. And um, also, I love the phrase attention engine, and um, I would love to be able to use that because I think it having children understand, like become aware of their own attention is such um, an important thing to try to to work with them on. And it's hard. It's hard, you know, it's for, especially for the younger kids. It's just a, a hard thing to teach. So I'd love to hear about that. Attention engine is cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, I know that you guys use some of these strategies, too. Essentially, if we take a child who's used to being a patient or he's used to being a child who's not doing well in school, then what we want to do is turn him into a cognitive scientist. So we want to engage with him and say, listen, I'm not just going to pour all this knowledge on top of you. We're going to figure all this out together. So in, in our coaching process, we have about five little mini lessons that we do with the children when it's appropriate. And one of those mini lessons is how is your brain made? You know, that you've got the cerebellum, which we call boots, and then you've got the limbic system, which we call the caveman. If you close it all up, then you've got the thinker. And that's a slow little lesson that we do, and we talk with them about it. We call all of these little lessons that we talk about cognitive conversations because the kids are becoming cognitive scientists. So the attention one is actually on my blog. It's totally free, the attention engine. I think there's even an attention engine video on the YouTube but the bottom line is that attention has five, it has seven different parts of your attention cycle. And your first part, and we never tell off the children all seven, it's too overwhelming at one time, but we've got the little poems and the little picture. And basically we say that everyone has an attention engine in their brain. And the job, our job is to know when to turn on our engine so that we're alert, and then take the flashlight in our brain and focus it on the target of our attention. Because if we can rev up our engine and then choose a, a, a salient target, salient's a big word, we would, I use it with kids actually, but 
you know, if we choose the proper target, the focus of our attention, then we can open the window to our memory and the information can fly in. And so we, I actually did this, it was very cute. Sue Milano, who's a um, wonderful special educator, invited me to one of her classes. And about two weeks ago, with this whole class, we became cognitive scientists, we learned about the attention engine, and I said, okay, everyone, right now, who's the focus of your attention? Where's your flashlight going? That's selecting. And they were like, it's on you. And I said, that's right. Let's put it on somebody else. Let's put it on Sarah. Everybody, flashlights, Sarah. So that's essentially what you're doing with the attention engine. You're telling them that, and it also, Rebecca, it makes them more empowered to be in charge of becoming their brain's best coach. So that, that's why we have cognitive conversations, because we're not layering information on them. We're, we're creating things with them. Awesome. I love it. I, I, I'm just imagining myself teaching kids about the attention engine as we're talking. Um, I, you know, I use a lot of, of course, your language and um, – uh, and I think you would love Hannah Bogan, who was a, a guest on our podcast. She's a speech language pathologist that um, also teaches kids about the brain. She has a very similar, um, you know, ca- kind of uh, way of talking about different parts of the brain and different systems. And it's really cool. It's I also what I love about it too is it gives kids um, the scientific understanding that it's not shaming or blaming. Like, pay attention is you know (laughs) and confusing too because who knows what that even means when somebody asks you to do that (laughs) i love Um, it we had a a comment online that um someone's impressed by you lynn with your um executive functioning skills to say everything you're saying (laughs) Um, do you have any we're running a little short on time is there anything else you want to share with us You know, first, I'm really honored. See, I love school psychology. And um, it's very interesting that you're from Maryland because one of the uh, most educated audiences I ever hung out with was from Maryland. And I actually want to understand more about your systems. Um, (laughs) There's something really going on there where you're doing great cognition work. But the bottom line is that sometimes this sounds a little fancy and a little scientific because we have to back it up with science. We have to be empirically informed, but it all comes down to the relationship. Um, It all comes down to being present and being interested and telling and and being confused. I'm always saying to the children, and you can watch this video on my website, uh, this child and I are creating, well, the whole class, we're we're trying to decide, we're going to do eight counts and we're trying to decide, well, what should we do with our body? And he's like, be a crane. I was like, crane? I thought maybe he was talking hip hop. I had no idea. It is all very real. So... Mm -hmm got to bring yourself to the table and be real and have relationships and just move on the beat and everything Mm -hmm. else will fall in place. (laughs) Maryland is um, where our national association of school psychology is like centered. So I don't know. I'm curious if that's part of it is like if our national organizations in that state, if like the most, Hardcore, intense <laughs> psychologists end up there. Rachel, <laughs> <laughs> I love Maryland. I will say, of of all the places I've worked, definitely the best. <laughs> Beautiful state. 
All right. Um, so any uh, call for last kind of minute questions, um, comments, anything. Um, so we'll be looking for those. Um, but yeah, I mean, I learned a lot and I think that this is a really, really good conversation. I'm definitely going to going to look into some of this stuff more. So a while back we did a podcast and I mentioned brain gym and then I got some online flack for it because although exercise is research based, brain gym specifically is not research based or something like that. So I'm just wondering, what do you think about brain gym? As I said earlier, I have I was kind of more like that too. Well, you know, where's the evidence? Um, and what I learned by working with the Yale team is that was naive on my part. Um, because it's very expensive and very difficult. So what we're trying to encourage, like when I talk with people, and when I say brain training, I mean that's the, that's the executive function in the classroom class. Um, it's a six-hour class, and what I say is when we meet next year, some of what we talk about today will have changed because we'll be more informed by new research. But what I'm telling you today is the state of the art of the research as we currently know it in the following five fields. And we really believe that you move to think, and if we can add more tempo and timing, that children are going to think better. But we have to really be careful not to overpromise, and we have to be careful to stay with the data. And um, it's, it's very, it's very important. But it's also it, brain gym. Unless a university said we want to study brain gym, which a university said we want to study Eaton Aerosmith. UBC is studying Eaton Aerosmith, which is one of the best dyslexia programs in the world. And unless a university expresses interest and then gets multi-million dollar grants, it's very hard to do the research. So I learned my lesson. <laughs> Aerosmith, Eaton. It's E-A-T-O-N, Aerosmith, A-R-R-O-S-M-I-T-H. Uh, Barbara um, Aerosmith and Howard Eaton. Amazing people. Amazing people. Okay, makes more sense than eating Aerosmith the band. Sorry, I misheard you. <laughs> um, Bloom Your Room, can you give us a quick description of what yeah, that is? Bloom Your Room, um, Bloom Your Room came out of Bloom because after we wrote Bloom, which was our um, like relationship book, uh, Wendy and I wrote that in 2015, I think. Um, it's our collaborative parenting philosophy, which you know I, I use in my own real life. Um, teachers said, we need Bloom for the classroom. And I was like, there's no way I'm writing you a book. You don't need a book. You need posters and art and songs and engagement. And so Megan Garcia, our graphic designer, made all of this beautiful, amazing art and songs and all this stuff. And, um, and then my little colleague in, in, uh, in Massachusetts, who I mentioned earlier, said, I need a book. I need to be able to show my administration that it's a book. And I was like, okay. Here we go. And so Bloom Your Room is a beautiful, it's all hand-drawn art by Megan Garcia. And it's basically a social-emotional literacy program that says our relationships come first. And when we agree to trust one another and feel safe and you can count on me and I can count on you, then everything in the world is possible. So that's what Bloom Your Room is. I, I really, I love Bloom Your Room. And I, I take so little credit for it because what's great about it is the art. <laughs> sounds fun um so thank you so much for joining us tonight lynn um i want all our viewers out there to note that we did a special episode with ross green and we can think about this episode and connecting with how kids do the best they can and how they have lagging skills that we can help support them in 
So check out that episode as well in conjunction with this one. And, and thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we'll be back later this month with another episode and, and keep following our page and, and making comments and asking questions. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.